Well, hello and welcome to the Frogs of War podcast. I'm Jamie Plunkett here with not Melissa Trewasser this week. She is in New York, uh, unfortunately, after TCU lost in the NIT. And she's still there because, you know, flights and stuff. Uh, so I am joined by Parker Fleming this week. Parker, how are you? Doing well, Jamie. How are you? I'm pretty great. Uh, it's been quite a day uh, for TCU Athletics with all of the stuff that's going on with Jamie Dixon right now uh, in UCLA. So uh, should we just jump right in? I think we should probably just jump right in. Yeah, it, it's been a roller coaster. we got to start somewhere. Yeah, so let's just start. Uh, it, let's actually back up and start in January. So in the middle of the basketball season, um, UCLA fired their head basketball coach, Steve Alford, after he did not live up to UCLA's expectations. Shocker, frankly. Um, Which that's probably so, another, that's probably an entirely different podcast episode about what the heck are UCLA expectations because Steve Alford was a fine coach. He was a fine coach and he had moderate success at UCLA. Uh, but when you're, uh, you know, legendary coaches John Wooden, and that person's not living up to the Wooden-esque as expectations, then, yeah, I mean, you're going to show them the door pretty quickly, I suppose. But, you know, that's just, I, regardless of whether their expectations are ridiculous or not. Back in January, when they fired Alford, uh, Jamie Dixon's name came up almost immediately as uh, a candidate to replace him as the Bruins head coach. And he was asked about it uh, pretty much right after the rumors started. And he said, you know, you guys are stuck with me here at TCU. My family loves it in Fort Worth, blah, blah, blah. Gave all of the typical coach speak that you hear um, when coaches are named as candidates in other places. Fast forward to Tuesday. Um, hours before the game starts, it's starting to leak on Twitter that uh, Jamie Dixon and Cincinnati head coach Mick Cronin are the two top candidates for the UCLA job. Um, TCU obviously goes out on Tuesday night and lays a complete egg against Texas. And on Wednesday, all day today, it has just been crazy rumors back and forth. He's gone. The contract is negotiated. They're just working on the buyout with TCU. Um, and it's just been, it's been crazy. So TCU has an $8 million buyout in Jamie Dixon's contract. UCLA and Jamie Dixon have apparently spent most of the day trying to talk TCU down off of that $8 million buyout to something around $1 million. TCU hasn't budged, and they should not budge. And thus, it looks like Jamie Dixon might end up actually staying uh, while UCLA either tries to raise $8 million really quick to get the buyout or moves on to Mick Cronin, who, uh, Cronin, who apparently is, is getting restless. Um do you think that's a succinct analysis of what's gone on today? Am I forgetting anything? Yeah, this is, I mean, this has been one of the biggest will they, won't they uh, in my life since season two of The Office aired live in like 2007. So Jeez. yeah, it's been an emotionally uh, emotionally taxing day. But yeah, I think that's that's pretty much sums it up is Dixon wants the job and there's a tag on his head that UCLA for some reason all of a sudden can't afford and uh, and he's trying to get that negotiated down. Well, you know, they've they bought out Alford's contract. And so they're already paying him close to $4 million, I think, to not coach at UCLA. So I think the question becomes, are they really willing to invest $12 million in convincing coaches not to coach at a specific school? Right. And because I mean, beyond that, then they're going to have to spend, you know, four and a half, five million dollars on Dixon a year. Plus his assistants, so they're going to be spending what seven and a half million dollars a year on a, on a coaching staff after they're spending twelve million dollars. So it's not like it's a small investment, right? And I mean that's that's less than they're spending on Chip and his entire staff on the football side of things. Not to mention they've just renovated or are currently renovating basically their whole athletic facilities. So um, yeah, we don't think of UCLA as strapped for cash or or poor or stingy or anything, but. Uh, they're they're just spending a lot of money right now, uh, so I can imagine they're reluctant to put that much um, into a coach who their fan base evidently doesn't love seeing the reactions. I think that whole thing has made looking at people's reactions online and in the media today about Jamie Dixon going to UCLA. I think that has really clouded a lot of this discussion 
because it seems like UCLA feels entitled to steal another coach or another team's coach, but also is not super happy about getting that coach. Yeah, you know, and I think, first of all, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, or maybe even last week at this point, uh, there were rumors that UCLA was making a really hard push for, you know, uh, John Calipari over at Kentucky. Uh, and that would have been a huge hire, obviously, for the Bruins. And then Kentucky said, oh, well, hang on, here's $9.5 million a year for life. Cal, please don't leave us. Please, God, don't leave us. And he's staying in Kentucky. So I guess if, you're, if your starting point is Cal and now you've moved down to Dixon and Cronin, I guess there's kind of an expected level of apathy from the fan base. But real, realistically, uh, at this point, with what UCLA has been in the last decade, wh- who, would you, who would you expect to whip if you're not going to money whip Cal or get if you're not going to money whip Cal uh, into, into coming there? You know, like... Like you mentioned right off the right off the top, like what is what is UCLA really right now as a program? I mean, Steve Alford went to three Sweet Sixteens in eight years. I don't know what you expect to be an automatic step up from that. Um, I've seen I've seen numbers recently. Somebody analyzing how often uh, when people are talking about Chris Beard and Texas Tech making it to the Final Four so quickly, um, and he's certainly a rising star. And there's a lot of discussion about him and coaching. Uh, in open jobs going on right now. But uh, I saw some numbers about the average coach makes it to his first Final Four in his 10th year of coaching total. And hmm. college basketball is just a long, not, not at one school, but total. Um, but college basketball is just a longer process of development. And it feels really, really entitled to expect um, anything more than consistently getting to the tournament and putting your players in a position to succeed and recruiting high players, which which Steve Alford did. I mean, he's not... Steve Alford's not John Wooden. I'm not. I'm not standing for that. But um, it is definitely intriguing just to see. Wow, we think we can get Cal, and then we definitely can't get Cal. But now we're unhappy with a lot of very solid coaches who aren't this otherworldly um, ascending star. Uh, I don't know why that feels like a disappointment for UCLA, uh, other than they're in their own heads about it. Probably it's probably that that they're in their own heads. But I, I wonder too if. if... Dixon's connections with Ben Howland have anything to do with their hesitancy because Howland's time at UCLA wasn't great. It wasn't awful. He was average. Um, they probably fired him a little too soon, but I wonder if that connection has anything to do with their level of apathy about about the potential there. Right, and and Howland's. I mean, Howland is not the UCLA coach like that. I I get that. He's a fine coach. Um, he's done great with Mississippi State. They were they were the quietest five seed. Granted, they lost to Liberty, but they were the quietest sure. five seed in the tournament that uh, for a while. Um, yeah, I mean, but Howland didn't even make it to uh, Howland made it to to a Final Four. Oh, Final Four twice. Uh, yeah. So I mean, you fired a coach who made it to the Final Four twice in ten years. You fire a coach who made it to the Sweet Sixteen three times in eight years. I just don't know what you want out of that. Yeah, and I mean, realistically, like. If Dixon does what he did at TCU in his first three years at UCLA, is there any way that he doesn't get fired? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know how this year isn't a disappointment for UCLA. For any other school except TCU, another NIT bid after making the tournament and an early exit last year is super disappointing. Um, yeah, it's, it's got to be. Yeah, thank you for bringing I mean, that back, by the way. So we're not a UCLA podcast. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. And so let's 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 talk about this from a TCU perspective for a minute here because. As of the recording of this podcast, it looks like Dixon is going to stay because credit to Jeremiah Zanotti, they're not um, budging on the buyout because why would you, right? Like if you're going to set a buyout, why would you come down off that buyout if you want the coach to stay? Right. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, So it looks like Dixon is going to stay, but with how hard it feels like maybe the Dixon camp was pushing for this buyout to go through. Is there any way that Dixon can save face right now, or is he just going to be kind of a lame duck for another season or two at TCU before the Frogs finally move on to something else? I think. Like, the, is there any way this can be salvaged? I think there can be. I, I, I think it all starts with one tweet that happened today. PJ Fuller, six hours ago, all caps, what's going on? Three face palm <laughs> emojis, two eye looking left emojis. Uh, I think that is a lot of it. It's. In a year, if we're sitting in TCU 
or I guess seven months, if we're sitting here with TCU having enrolled PJ Fuller and Jamie Dixon as the coach, playing a, a competitive non-conference schedule, setting themselves up for a tournament bid, I think a lot can be forgiven with continuing the plan, continuing to build, continuing to improve. But if things start happening, like uh, star recruits or star players feel like they can't buy in or feel like there's uncertainty here, that's how programs unravel. And TCU has had a fun fun couple years, but isn't – I mean, they are not this stalwart basketball program that can weather a lot of storms. They need some stability. And so it's kind of an edge-of-the-knife thing here where if consistency happens, they perform well this offseason, they – enroll the guys they need to enroll and, and go into the season uh, competitive, I think we can forgive a lot of that. But it's going to be – it's going to take a lot from Jamie Dixon in terms of looking guys in the face and saying, hey, I know it looked like I wanted to leave, but I'm actually here. And I think you might even have seen some of that on Tuesday night. I hate to say something like that because I'm not sure 100% believe it. But there's a very believable narrative about – the team knowing some things are going on and not feeling 100% locked in and ready to play for Jamie Dixon on, on that NIT game last night. Well, I mean, they, they had their worst shooting performance of the season by far. They only scored 16 points in the first half. Uh, it was the, actually the worst shooting performance that TCU has had since I think they shot 29.5% against Texas in 2014. Wow. So, like, it's the worst shooting performance in the Dixon era. That happened on Tuesday night. Let's get into this for a second because TCU got absolutely hammered by Texas in the semifinal of the NIT up in Madison Square Garden. Melissa was there, so she got to witness it live. Good for her. Congratulations to her. Um, I'm thankful that I ended up not going because that would have been absolutely brutal. But, uh, yeah, TCU, it's hard to beat a team three times in a row. TCU couldn't do it against Texas. They never looked in sync. They were missing easy shots. Kevin Samuel, gosh, that missed dunk stands out as a play to me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how much of the game you saw, but they get like four or five offensive rebounds on one possession, and then he is – there is nobody within eight feet of him, and he throws down a dunk right off the back rim, and it ricochets back out again. That was kind of the epitome, I think, of the night. For TCU, they lose 58 to 44. So the season ends. Um, and it definitely looked like there was something up, maybe. I don't know. You can read into into a performance as much as you want or as little as you want. Um, but maybe you're right. Maybe there's something there. Um, but either way, it was quite the thud to the end of TCU's season that was up and down for a significant portion of it with all of the transfers and the injuries and Kawat Noy, his last three weeks are absolutely forgettable for that kid. Um, And you're obviously, you know, you're now, you're seeing Alex Robinson and J.D. Miller walk out the door as as graduating seniors. And so it's going to look a lot different in that locker room next year. Um, But, you know, putting aside all of the Dixon rumors the last day and a half, if you had to analyze just very briefly TCU's basketball season this year, uh, how would you frame their 23 and 14 record? Well, I, um, I was really rooting for TCU to, I mean, to win because I like to win, but also I really wanted the chance to play Lipscomb again and have the opportunity to say that TCU beat every non-conference team that they played this season. Um, I think 20 wins in a basketball program uh, for TCU and for a program like TCU and what they've been historically is monumental. And we shouldn't forget that. I have these kind of barometers of performance where I can't really be mad if something, if this happens for football, basketball, baseball, right? So Mm -hmm. football, basketball, baseball, I want nine wins, 20 wins, 30 wins, right? I'm spoiled in baseball. 30 is a lot of wins, but even even last season, they weren't very good, and they got to 30. Um, so as long as you're hitting those, we can explain away, all right, there's some other things that are going on. You know, nine wins in football, shoot, probably should have had one or two more games, but you're still competitive. You're still there. 20 wins in basketball is firmly in that discussion. I think TCU had a claim to be in the NCAA tournament. I think there are some pretty egregious errors, and TCU is still suffering from being a non-traditional power, um, a small private school, uh, and kind of – some of Jamie Dixon's scheduling habits have caught up with them. And so I think that really determined more of their tournament standing than their performance, especially given the attrition winning 20 games uh, is, is insane. TCU did, 
didn't win 20 games for Jamie Dixon. That just didn't like that didn't happen. Um, uh, Neil Doherty in 2005, but who cares about that season? You know, uh, mm-hmm. so I think having a disappointing season that's 23 and 14, as opposed to a disappointing season that is nine and 22, cannot be overstated in terms of how this program's growing. And so I'm happy to get on the get on the Jamie Dixon train and say, all right, whatever is going on. Let's get past it. We'll have to see what happens in the next couple of days for that to shake out. But as of right now, we're saying, hey, this was still a building year. And yes, we didn't get to cross the next thing off the pyramid. But this team transitioned from the old core of TCU hustle and grit and odds and ends that kind of came together to become a team uh, and is transitioning now into that giving the mantle down to a new talented core. There's a lot of good recruits coming in. There's a lot of good recruits here. And you have that critical mass of talent that all uh, kind of happened together. So, yes, there was there were some attrition. But you look at Kendrick Davis. You look at Desmond Bain and the peaks he got to and what he's capable of when he's on. You look at how Quatnoy was able to, at, at long stretches for the season, carry a team completely. Um, and you look at the raw potential and the ridiculous ceiling of Kevin Samuel. Um, and I think if you feel anything other than positive about the future for the players on the court right now, uh, your expectations have evolved and you need to uh, check them because this is amazing that we have yet again, another year of next year is going to be better than this year. And hopefully 2019 is that last season for TCU basketball of saying next year is going to be the year, right? We fully have talent coming in. We have a core that's established. We're, we're recruiting better, um, and we're going to be in, hopefully, in Jamie Dixon's fourth year. And so I think this season is a really, really good building block. We won more games than we did last year. We easily could have quit and lost to Nebraska or Creighton, scrappy teams who had a lot more to play for um, in terms of feel-good, trying to salvage their seasons. Um, and with a short bench to win, you know, three NIT games – that, I think I think this is still a really special season, especially given the history of TCU basketball. Yeah, I can get behind that. There, there are two things uh, in the midst of what you said, really three things that I want to bring up. The first is everybody knows that you were talking about Seton Hall. Okay. I can't do, don't don't trigger me. I can't do that. So we're just going to leave it at that. Everybody knows that you were talking about Seton Hall. Um, the second thing is uh, Jamie Dixon's non-conference scheduling it almost feels like the big 12 is forcing him to have a tougher non-conference schedule because if if you're listening to this and you don't know it yet uh tcu and the big east have um come together for a similar kind of day of games like the big 12 and uh, the sec have so tcu will be playing uh, xavier next year as a part of that uh, big 12 big east challenge which is kind of cool and you know I think you mentioned this in the Slack channel earlier today. You've got the Xavier game, a game against an SEC team, the SMU game, uh, USC. Um, and if all of those teams kind of play uh, above average basketball and finish in the top you know, quarter of their conferences respectively, then that's a really strong uh, kind of non-conference series of games right there, uh, which is somewhat out of the norm for what we've seen from, from Jamie Dixon teams in his first three seasons. Yeah, and and as unfortunate as it is, in college basketball, name and jersey matters so much. So, I mean, TCU had some quality out-of-conference opponents this year. Fresno State, Lipscomb, SMU should have been a good team. USC should have been a good team. Um, And then they caught some bad luck in that Hawaii tournament with Colorado losing. Uh, They could have played three more top 100 teams in that tournament and instead played a sub-200 Indiana State that they had already beaten uh, and 145 buck now. So if that had broken differently and you get another top 100 Colorado, you could say, all right, well, the scheduling wasn't terrible and they played some good teams and maybe they're having a hard time scheduling games because they're an upstart. But uh, next year, there's going to be quality and there is going to be brand name recognition, which goes a long way in the tournament. It's a lot harder to say, yes, TC lost to Lipscomb, but Lipscomb has a lot of seniors and they're a really talented team. No, they're Lipscomb. They're a random small school without football outside of Nashville, right? Um, and so getting getting those bigger brand names, um, somebody else mentioned, yeah, there, there's potential to play a tournament and play Colorado and Clemson 
next year That'd as well. Be huge. And so we just want, man, we want D1 football schools. That's who we want to play in basketball and non-conference and just trying to get those brand recognitions up. So um, hopefully Jamie Dixon can shake that reputation as next year TCU will have a lot of big names on the schedule. Definitely. And uh, the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about in, in the midst of, of what you said earlier was, uh, you know, if, if we're, we're making a lot of assumptions about Dixon staying around, you know, obviously there's still p- potential for him to go. There could be more fallout from all of this. Who knows? The, can't predict the future. If he is not the head coach at TCU next year, how do you feel about this scenario? Assistant head coach Ryan Miller gets promoted to head coach. Okay. He works to keep some of this, some of the other assistants in place, but he brings in an assistant coach that has name recognition, NBA experience, uh, and potentially some recruiting savvy in his brother, Mike Miller. How would you feel about a Ryan Miller head coaching situation with Mike Miller sitting on the TCU bench? Okay. As a native Memphian, I love that idea so many ways. Real question though, isn't Mike working for Penny right now? He's in Memphis as an assistant coach, yes. Okay, so hard situation to leave, but I'll put that aside. Um, Mike Miller is one of the best technical shooters I have ever seen. Like, that guy was hobbling around on no knees. He had, not like, zero out of two knees functioning and could still find a way to get in the corner and make a three in the NBA consistently. Um, and so that would be amazing to get him there. He's shown that he can recruit. He's shown that he can offer value on the court. Um, and so I think that would be one of the better case scenarios. Um, I think I would much prefer the continuity there, especially given some recruiting uncertainty that would happen if Jamie Dixon left. But, uh, I think worst case scenario would be, you know, hiring like Musselman from Nevada or somebody who's should mm-hmm. be a coach, but isn't going to be a great fit. Um, or yeah, or something like what, UCLA will do if they don't get Jamie Dixon, which is hire Mick Cronin, which is a name that is a coach and is pretty decent, but also isn't really, again, like Musselman, good coach, but is not really the guy that you want to hang a, a young program that needs to be built up on. So uh, I think I'm I think I'm on the Miller train. Um, that would be ideal. Uh, of course, I have to throw this out there. Uh, we could pay more than Texas could for Chris Beard. So, you know, we might as well just go get Chris Beard because uh, evidently it's super easy to just, just go steal a coach away like that. Right. You just spend a ton of money. Look at what UCLA is doing. Right yeah. Now. Right. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, I do love the Chris Beard rumors just because it's it's kind of nice to actually be on the other side of that joke for once. Yeah. Where you're just going to money whip a, school, money whip a, a coach away. Um you know, but this this whole thing uh, – well, actually, first of all, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll continue this conversation. Sound good? Cool. All right, we're back. And uh, continuing this conversation about all of the stuff swirling about Jamie Dixon and UCLA and TCU basketball, et cetera, et cetera, uh, this has reminded me a tremendous amount, Parker, of what TCU baseball experienced last year. Um, after the disappointing season where they still won 33 games, they were 33 and 23, I believe, uh, almost made it to the tournament by way of winning the big 12 tournament. Um, but lost in the, in the championship game. And then all of a sudden, all of these rumors about Jim Schlossnagel taking the head coaching job at Mississippi state and he's a hundred percent gone. And it's, it's Kirk Sarloos is probably going to be the head coach, but then all of a sudden Kirk Sarloos is going to be the head coach at rice. And it feels like TCU baseball is falling apart uh, right in front of our eyes. And then lo and behold, here we are right now. And uh, guess who the pitching coach for TCU is? It's Kirk Sarloos. And guess who the head coach for TCU is? It's Jim Schlossnagel and TCU baseball sitting at what? 19 and seven right now and looking like they could be um, a, a, a host in a regional again this season because of the way that they're playing. Obviously, they've got some issues to fix with pitching and hitting, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But does this resemble at all to you the situation that TCU baseball was in last year? It does. Um, and talk about emotional time periods of the year. Uh, we saw Avengers and Thanos snapped half of the people we love away, and TCU <laughs> basketball was also getting snapped into the Soul Stone. So yeah, it was a bad, it was a bad couple of months. Um, yeah, that okay. So that one's kind of a mystery to me. I don't know a hundred percent. I was a little more connected to that than I thought I was, just because I know someone who 
uh, may or may not have taught some of Schlossnagel's kids uh, in high school and also have a bunch of friends who are at Mississippi State and some, some inroads over there. And so that seemed like that was a done deal, very similar to the Jamie Dixon thing. But it was Mississippi State that went back and said, well, actually, we're winning in the regional and we got this whole banana thing going on. And so I think we're going to wait and see what happens with this coach this interim coach. And when that happened, Schlossnickel said, okay, well, I'm obviously not going to wait around. And he called Kirk and got him back together. And so it is similar to the TCU situation or the Jamie Dixon situation in that a coach wanted to leave. And I think it's more understandable for uh, Schlossnickel to want to leave to a big school because of the scholarship issue in baseball. Sure. And so that's, yeah. I think that's a lot different than, Oh, I want to take John Wynn's job, you know? Uh, but that seemed to be on the fault of Mississippi State, and then Schlossnagel said, okay, well, no, if you're going to treat me that way, I don't know if that's true, but that's what it seemed like. If you're going to treat me that way, I'm going I'm to come back and stay here. Uh, so it's similar, but it's kind of the inverse. Uh, and so maybe UCLA says, well, we can't, afford to not, we can't afford to get neither Jamie Dixon nor Mick Cronin, so we're going to go get Cronin, and, Jay, and Jamie Dixon stays. Honestly, I feel like Schloss has been able – He's, he's a little more quiet, and so he's been able to save face a little bit better. I think Jamie Dixon's a lot of a polarizing figure, and so uh, it's going to be a lot harder, especially given the national media attention basketball gets as opposed to baseball. Um, so similar situations, but I think a little more nuanced and a little tougher for Jamie Dixon. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And it's, you know, it's, it's weird to think of Dixon as a polarizing figure simply because, you know, before, before Tuesday at noon – I don't think there was a TCU fan on the planet that was upset with Jamie Dixon. Right. You know, if, if they're paying attention to basketball at all, they're looking at this season and they're saying, okay, well, look at look at what he did from a coaching perspective with seven scholarship dudes, five guys getting injured or transferring out. Uh, you know, that's that's pretty exceptional to get uh, to have a twenty three win team, especially like you said earlier at TCU out of that. Right. That's that's a that's a end result that I think we all should be happy with, um, but you're right because it does feel like a, the majority of the fan base is turning on him uh, just in the last 24 hours, which is it's kind of wild. Yeah, and and I mean, winning cures all ills, so it's hard right now getting left out of the tournament. There's some resentment and. Um, you lose an NIT game and look flat, coupled with this, and so there's kind of multiplicities in uh in the effect here but yeah he's gonna i mean he has he has work to do i I think that's completely fair to say i hope he stays and i think that he can do the work but it is not going to be tcu for jamie dixon is a harder job this year if he stays than it has been uh thus far oh for sure because i I mean the expectations now not only were they going to be raised because you want to get back to the tournament again but now he he tried to leave he right. saw a job and he wanted to go and okay, well, cool. You're here now and it's time to actually make that leap. We see what Chris Beard is doing over at Texas tech in his third season. Uh, and this is your fourth season now. So come on, it's time to go. Yeah. I think, I think the expectations were going to be higher next year anyway. And mm-hmm. now they're going to have this undercurrent of, okay, all right, big man, prove it. Um, and right. so that's, gonna, Oh, you wanted, you wanted yeah. the UCLA job. So show us, show us why you should have had the UCLA job. Yep. Yep. Um, so it's going to be tough, uh, for sure. Just because of the expectations. Yeah, I definitely think so. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Eric Musselman over at Nevada. Um, we've talked about Ryan Miller as a, as a potential replacement if Dixon does end up leaving. Uh, but there's an interesting name out there, and I should have done more preparation as in any to look this guy up before starting to bring him up. But the Division II head coach at Northwest Missouri State, who I believe um, went 38-0 and this year, Ben McCollum. Oh, I know that name. name. Hold on. So he's at North, Northwest Missouri State University. They just won a Division II uh, national championship. He has been the head coach at Northwest Missouri State uh, since 2009-2010. This year, he went 38-0, and they won a national championship. Two seasons ago, they went 35-1 and won a national championship. 
He's made the uh, NCAA Division II Sweet 16 three, uh, I guess, wait, hang on, five out of the last six years. He has an overall head coaching record at Northwest Missouri State of 241 and 75. Now, I know that this is, people are going to say, you are stupid for talking about a Division II head coach. But what was the conversation that happened on the Slack channel earlier today? Remind me of this, Parker, about the parity at the DZU level and what it takes to be a coach at that level insofar as parity. Oh, no. Were you, I think, were you, I, think were I might you have been out of conversation? Were you I out do, of this conversation? I okay, did go so to class at some point during the day, and so I missed man, here and there. That's overrated. Anyways, uh, I, I believe that the conversation was around uh, the idea that it's, it's really just – it's almost impossible to, to recruit D2 basketball. I mean – the level of talent across the board at Division Two is wildly similar from team to team, and uh, that therefore it takes an exceptional coach to be able to draw talent out and, and to create a system in which players can succeed uh, consistently. And so, you know, if you're if you're really looking for a guy who maybe is going to stick around for a while, is looking for an opportunity to get to Division One, Ben, uh, what's his name? I just already forgot it. Ben McCollum. McCollum. Head coach at Northwest Missouri State. This is wild. He's 37 years old. Maybe. You know, I mean, if, if all of these D1 coaches aren't really doing it for you, if, like, if Musselman isn't the guy, if you don't want Mick Cronin, if you don't want an assistant off of, like, Kentucky's bench or whoever else's bench, if you don't want to money whip Chris Beard or money whip Shaka Smart or do any of those stupid things. Oh, gross. No. Um, Right, and so don't even uh, say that. Yeah, you know, let's let's talk about who was coaching with more enthusiasm on Tuesday night. Do you think Shaka Smart was coaching for his job? Because I think he absolutely was. That poor guy. That's man. That's like Charlie Strong. You just just don't take that job. Yeah, I I don't know. I feel bad for him. I like Shaka, but he is uh, he's destined to underwhelm. Uh, just given the shoes he was filling and, and all that. Yeah, that uh, that's a tough situation for him. And it definitely um, didn't help that Rick Barnes got Tennessee to the Elite, right. to the elite Eight this year. Well, and, and, I mean, like, Shaka Smart clearly can't win without a talent imbalance. And it's a lot harder to get a talent imbalance in the Big 12 than it is in the Atlantic Sun. What is VCU in? Whatever Something like that. Conference? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, wait. So I, I I like the idea of the call up, and we can probably move on. We spent a lot of time on this, but I like the idea of the call up because you think about it in football, um, the coach for Buffalo right now, who was at Wisconsin Whitewater and won a million championships and moved up mm-hmm. and has done well. Um, there's precedent for moving up and someone who can build a program getting to a situation where you're not going to get, you know, you're not recruiting five star talent. You're, you're not recruiting two five-star McDonald's All-American one-and-done freshmen at TCU. That's just not happening. And so a place where you can build systems and those systems have greater effects, um, I think that's a, a really interesting comparison. Um, I've also seen some stuff about, like, Mike Davis wouldn't be a terrible – I mean, he's not a great coach, but he's got a lot of experience and is someone who could, I don't know, come in and stabilize – and so if TC was scrambling, Mike Davis was at Indiana and kind of flamed out and then bounced around from like UAB to Texas Southern. But uh, he's, he's at Detroit now. Um, but I think that there's a possibility for someone like that to come in and just like level the playing field. Uh, that would be a lot like hiring Trent Johnson again. But if Jamie Dixon leaves, we're taking a step back and we need to kind of level set. And so Mike Davis could be somebody to do that. I don't know. He, he probably wouldn't come here. That's just a thought. You know, there's another really interesting name out there right now who might be able to to keep this thing on the tracks and take it to the next level. I don't know if you're going to appreciate this name, uh, but Bryce Drew was randomly fired at Vanderbilt a, a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, here's the thing about... Here's the thing about Scott Drew's brother. Uh, <laughs> he's Scott Drew's brother, and that would be a great troll job, but uh, he is also... Did not do a good job at Vanderbilt. Um, That's not yeah. true. He wasn't uh, terrible. Was he that bad? I didn't think they he didn't, was that bad at Vandy. Well, they didn't make the ter- they made the tournament once out of three years, and oh, they were so bad this year. Well, that's but th- their guy got hurt. Yeah, and so he recruited a five star, but then he got hurt, and so it kind of unraveled. But like, wasn't amazing. I mean, the most wins at Vanderbilt was nineteen, and one of those wins he was, was great against at Valpo. TCU. 
again, yeah. similar to Shock Smart, hard to win without a talent imbalance, uh, and it's harder to get a talent imbalance at Vanderbilt than it is Valpro. Yeah, some might um, say it's harder to get a talent imbalance at Vanderbilt than it is at TCU. That's like, do that's you really true. think Vanderbilt basketball was recruiting at at the highest level? I mean, no. he, if he comes to Texas and has access to some of the some of the talent around here, and is arguably in a as stout, if not stouter, conference, but with kind of a better core than maybe what Vanderbilt has at this point. I don't know. Anyways, we've spent far too long already talking about Bryce Drew, and I regret bringing it up. Last thing, I just feel like whenever we bring up Scott Drew, uh, he wasn't involved in this, but we need to remember that uh, a Baylor basketball player murdered another Baylor basketball player, and nothing really happened about it. So, This is cut, true. Cut that out this if you want true. to. We just can't forget. No, we can't forget, and... I, I will never be able to forget that documentary about it where What's-His-Face looks directly into the camera, all creepy AF, and denies everything. Oh, we're, yeah. We're just like, no, you can't. You can you could try to explain it away. You can't just say this didn't happen. Yeah. 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 Woof. It's absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. But you're right. We've spent too much time on this. Let's move on uh, to what is currently maybe a happier topic. Uh, TCU baseball won in a really strange way on Tuesday night. Did you see anything about this? Okay. just I was watching the basketball game, so I just saw people talking about it. Uh, okay. So tell me what happened. Yeah. So here, here's how this went down. Uh, so TCU was losing to the University of Texas at Arlington in the ninth inning. And the Frogs have a couple guys coming up to the plate. They end up with runners on the corners for Josh Watson. And Josh Watson uh, singles in a run. So it's 2-2 two to two now. And my computer is freezing. So that's good. Everything is fine. Um, but let's see here. Hang on. Vamp for a second about something interesting. Uh, well, all I have is baseball stuff because I know where you're going with it. So I can't really, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you have this, but I'm looking at this. Everything is, everything is fine. Hang this on is wild. Gosh, we're doing great. I'm doing so well at podcasting right now. Can I take 18 over the and nine is 18 and nine is their record, by the way. I think I said 18 and seven earlier. Yeah. Yeah. 18 okay. and nine. All right. So here we go. Um, so it's the ninth inning and Josh Watson singles in a run to tie the game. Um, he, or sorry, he doubles down the line. Wolf advances to third and Zach Humphrey scores. So you have Hunter Wolf standing on third base, Josh Watson standing on second base with two outs. Jake Gunther comes up to the plate and he is intentionally walked. So you've got the bases loaded. Um, Austin Henry comes up to the plate, makes sense to walk Gunther because you've got a force out of any bag. That ends, that ends the inning and moves on to, to extra innings for UTA. But the pitcher, Box, and with the bases loaded, Hunter Wolf comes in to score, and TCU wins the game 3-2. That's Absolutely wild. Absolutely ridiculous. A balk-off. Yeah. How many, uh, how many times does that happen? Okay, so that was my first question was like, all right, that's pretty crazy because there are things um, – so there used to be this Twitter account back when baseball Twitter was still really cool and not smug and lame like it is now. Uh, there was a, an account called uh, Shrimp Watch, and they would tweet whenever there was a possibility of a walk-off walk, which is really fun. Um, but so I started looking into like, all right, what are weird endings? And I have a list of recorded walk-off balks in baseball history in the MLB. And there are 16 of them. Seriously? 16, and then they mentioned two. So 18, as of 2015. So this list is in 2015. I haven't been aware of one happening in the la- since 2015. Because um, I know about this. The last one was the Dodgers and the Rangers. But <laughs> I, yeah, 18 seems like a remarkable number in terms it's of very high. too high. But they have documented, I mean, 1942, 1943, the, the exact who, like, who it was, and it's from Play Index, so it's real. But it was shockingly more common than I thought it was. That's ridiculous. So talk me through, because I think I remember this Dodgers-Rangers game. Talk me through what happened there, if you can. I can. If you have that information. Well, now I'm disappointed, but we'll, it's fine. So yeah. <laughs> TCU... Wins a balk off 
over UTA, which is nice because a midweek loss to UTA really would have been frustrating, uh, I think, in, in the grand scheme of things when you're talking about non-conference schedule and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, it, there, are some, there are some issues here that, that we really need to get into about TCU baseball, uh, the first of which is it does not feel like TCU has a reliable arm outside of Nicoladolo at this point. Yeah, I think that's the uh, that is the absolute truth. Uh, looking at this lineup, and you start to scroll. You know, you pull up the aggregate stats, and you start to scroll, and you're like, "Oh, interesting." Um, you know, Matt Rudis in what four games has an eleven or a seventeen point three six strikeout per nine. That's great. Oh, four games. He's not he's not actually pitching and he has an ERA of eleven point five seven. Well that's not reliable. Um and then you go and you look and you see like just looking all the way down, you think, oh, Jake Eisler, all the stats say, oh, he's an he's an innings eater. He's, you know, pitched a lot. He's got a fairly decent he keeps his walks down and he's got a fairly decent strikeout rate. Oh, his ERA is 6.99. Uh, and he can't get out of an inning. And so you look at all this and it does seem like every single pitcher in the, in the proverbial bullpen start is included, um, are, are fatally flawed in some way. There are two pitchers, sorry, three pitchers on this team right now who have an ERA below three, who have pitched more than ten innings? Yeah. Can you name all? Can you name all three? Oh well, I'm I'm looking. Oh, so you're looking cheating. at it. Yeah. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Nick Lodolo with a 1.13 ERA and 48 innings pitched. Charles King with a 2.36 ERA and 26.2 innings pitched. And Marcelo Perez with a 2.57 ERA and 14 innings innings pitched. And he even gave up. He blew. He blew the lead against Oklahoma State on Sunday, and yeah. that's why TCU ended up losing the series. Eleven so hits, like, four earned runs. He's not. Yeah, like I don't. I don't know what what it is. Nineteen strikeouts in fourteen innings. That's amazing. Eleven hits in five in five runs. What, like what's going on? Yeah, it's uh, like I don't understand. And you know, I was sitting at Buffalo Bros the other day. Uh, I guess the Saturday night of the Texas series. I had just gotten back in town was sitting there watching the Texas game with a buddy, and the camera panned over to Kirk Sarloose sitting in the dugout for an extended <laughs> period of time in the middle of that, like, 13-to-1 loss to UT. And the facial expressions that that, that man was making, the heavy kind of full-body size, the eye rolls, the, the complete frustration, just all of his body posture showed that he was not having it with his pitching staff on that day. And I don't know why he would be having it with his pitching staff pretty much any other day since then, unless it's Nick Lodolo pitching. I mean, yeah. Lodolo's whip is .83 right now. Like, that's wild. The only other player with a whip below 1.2 is Perez at 1. And I guess Charles at 1.15. Again, those are the three guys that have yeah. been consistently decent or better than decent all year. You can't trust anybody else at this point. Right. And, if, and I mean, we're at this point, like, so Lodolo started seven games and he's pitched 48 innings. And so basically you're saying, all right, if Nick Lodolo doesn't make it through seven, your bullpen is screwed for the rest of the series. Cause you, you only have two guys you can really rely on. So you've got to bring in somebody questionable and either waste Lodolo's start and risk a loss or bring in somebody reliable to make sure you capitalize on Lodolo's start. But then your depth is worse later on. And so it's this terrible mm-hmm. optimization problem of like, you have a lot of holes and only so many plugs that you can put in at any given time. Yeah. Now, and looking at looking at the stats right now for for the for the pitching staff for the bullpen. Here's a, a random question: Why why have Augie Milbauer and Dalton Brown only pitched a combined 17 innings this season? Like that's that's a little shocking to me, considering the inconsistency of some of the other guys in, in the bullpen. Yeah, just they've so, given up a combined three earned runs. This brings a um, yeah, but Augie's Augie's given up a ton of hits. Uh, ten 11, and eight innings. Eleven point two five per night. Yeah, yeah. So ten, like ten and eight innings. I mean, for a reliever, uh, especially a twenty-year-old reliever. Um, but he's a lefty, so I can see 
uh, I could see maybe he's being thought of more as a specialist and needs to develop before he gets trusted, like Force Flash trusts him. Um, I, I think be, it's pretty... Hang on. Let, let's oh, take this one, one level deeper because they've given up a total of 15 hits in these 17 innings. One of those hits has been an extra base hit. Between the two of them, they've given up one extra base hit. Yeah. Now, they've, they've walked a bunch of people. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's the control issue. They've walked a bunch of people. But they've given up one extra base hit between the two of them. So this brings up an interesting discussion of, like, I could tell you exactly what I would do if I if this were MLB players and we had the StatCast data. Um, mm-hmm. I could go look at their pitch mix, and I could go look at their expected statistics, and I could go look at their splits and say, all right, well, are they being thought of as only one – are they only entering the game in one kind of situation? And I could go do that by hand, but I'm, I, you know – yeah. Uh, time and constraints and everything, but it's, sure. are they, are they being brought in in only one kind of situation? Um, are they, so if, the, if that's true, then that means coach doesn't trust them. Manager doesn't trust them. Um, if they're being brought in in a lot of situations, but, but not a, but they're not being brought in a lot. So if they're being brought in, in a variety of situations and you could say, okay, well, he's trying to develop him, but he still doesn't fully trust him. Uh, but he's trying to give him opportunities to build up that, repertoire or that reliability and he hasn't done it yet um but without without knowing stuff like expected statistics i mean it's very possible uh or even or even like pitch mix or balls and strikes um with even that i mean how we have innings pitch but we don't have how many pitches they've thrown uh readily available i could go dig but i'm not gonna do that on the fly but you're saying okay well if you haven't uh i mean if 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 you're what if, they, I mean, what if they're throwing nine pitches per at-bat, right? I'm not going to bring that guy mm-hmm. in in any kind of meaningful leverage moment uh, because that's going to introduce a lot of variability and a lot of volatility into a situation. Um, and so what are, you, what are you considering a leverage moment then? Are you, are you considering it like two on, two out? Or are you considering it like the start of the eighth inning? Because I think there's a significant difference there too. I, I mean, obviously you don't want an eighth inning guy who's going to throw 20 pitches, but if you're giving him a clean inning, you know what's the what's the risk compared to throwing out uh, James Notary or Charles King or someone else who's who's been given up some runs? Yeah, so you're probably going to know more about that than me because I've been caught up in baseball or in basketball season in school, and so I haven't watched as much baseball this season as as opposed to just like following the the stat lines and doing a little data behind the scenes. So this may be conjecture. Who knows? Um, but I don't like TCU doesn't have a lot of opportunities this season to bring in guys to mop up. And that was like an underrated benefit of these teams in, you know, the last five years that won 50, 49, 51 and 49 games, you know, for mm-hmm. for the last five years before this is you're, you're pounding people and you're reliable bats. And so you, you get this pitcher pipeline of development where you can bring in guys in these low pressure situations. But the margins are lower now because, one, last year we were scraping for 33 wins and trying to get into the tournament, let alone host a regional. Like, couldn't even, weren't, weren't even sniffing hosting a regional. But you come in and you, you have to be more strategic about your deployment. And this year with some of the losses and some of the inconsistency in the starters, you have to be more consistent because you need the, you need the wins. And so there's a trade-off between pitcher development and – winning and that trade-off gets larger the lower the quality of your team right so if you're a worse team you can't afford to develop pitchers because you don't have these opportunities for them to make mistakes the mistakes are more consequential because the margins are slimmer um and so i think that is some of it is tc still in a little bit of a cycle from a down year last year where they didn't get to develop some of these guys who should be able to come in and um have have built up those innings and then this year the margins are still a little smaller than they were two, three, four, five years ago, where guys could come in up big in the seventh, eighth, ninth inning and work on their stuff and get opportunities to go long. That's probably a good research project right there. That's the question I have is what's the average relief appearance that TCU is facing in 2019? And what is mm-hmm. that like the reliever outing? How long are relievers going? And is that different? So that would be my theory is that TCU relievers are going shorter outings this season than in the past because guys aren't getting the opportunity to develop because the games are more crucial. 
I think that's fair. I, you know, from from watching pretty much every single game this year, I think that that's fair. Outside, I mean, obviously you have exceptions to every to every kind of rule. Um, I, you know, Charles King and Jake Eisler are the two major exceptions to that rule because they they are absolutely in relief innings eaters that that can go for a long time. Right. Um, they they have starters innings basically. <clears throat> yeah, basically, basically. Uh, that would be that would be an interesting experiment for you to to run, just kind of uh, figuring out what that looks like as far as the data goes. Uh, maybe for a stats of war podcast, who knows? Um, but let's uh, we've got to, we've got one more thing to talk about as far as TCU baseball is concerned, and that's the bats. Uh, but let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and do that. Sweet. Okay, so we've we've talked about pitching. Uh, Obviously, there are a lot of concerns outside of Nick Lodolo. Um but there's another concern too, and it's 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 that at some point in time, all of this shuffling of the lineup and all of these injuries and the testing of the depth is going to affect the bats, and we've started to see that a little bit, um, it, just in some inconsistencies uh, as far as run production goes. Where you say, okay, well, TCU, uh, they scored seven, six, and eight against Oklahoma State and lost. And then they come out and they only score three against UTA. Um, they scored three, one, and 12 against Texas as they went two and three in that weekend. Um, you know, obviously they blew the doors off Eastern Michigan, but it, it, it just feels like at this point that there's, at, at some point in time, you're going to run into the end of your depth. And, and TCU has Porter Brown, who's suffered a significant injury uh, and is down for a long time, if not the entire season. Uh, you've got some other guys who are, who are banged up, like Hunter Wolf missed a sig- significant number of games. Andrew Kiefer is out for who knows how long. Uh, talk a little bit about what you've seen from the hitters. I know that you sent me a chart earlier today that, that's really kind of interesting. Talk to me a little bit about what you've seen from the hitters and, and how has the shuffling maybe affected some of the bats? Yeah, so Is, I was. I was did I cue I was, that up right? Right. No, I'm. I'm totally there. Um, there's. There's just a lot, and I'm excited. So it's kind of like the roadrunner, you know, like running my feet, you. spinning a little bit. So here, I'm, <laughs> I've started talking. I've got my steam going. So, um, yeah. So I, my first question was kind of about that, just general broad scoring. And so I've kind of looked into TCU's run margin by game. Uh, somebody on Twitter had said something about like day of the week uh, a couple weeks ago, and that TCU was losing on Saturday, maybe because Janzak was hurt. Um, Mm -hmm. I I can't remember. I wish I could attribute it. Whoever you are. Thank you. Uh, I stole your idea. Um, And I went through and said, okay, without, let's just look at the data without even putting days of the week on it. Um, And I charted the run margin by game and just plotted it as a line to see like what's happening. And it is a as as perfect as sawtooth, so like back and forth, cutting up and down, as you can get in in real world data, um, indicating that the consistency in TCU's bats is just not there. Um, it's it's left and right. It's it's one one game, thirteen the next, uh, three one game, ten the next, six twelve, sixteen, and then five three one. Like it's just all over the place in terms of, uh, and that's across series. I intentionally read. So I wasn't just, so we're not, it's not based on the opponent. It's based on uh, just a lot of volatility in TCU's bats. And so there's inconsistency in scoring. And I think lineup has a little bit to do with that. I'm a big believer in like sequencing in baseball. And so batting players ABC in order is going to be different than batting players BCA in order. Um, just because of the way that baseball works and that it's a sequential pattern and that each outcome is conditional on the one in front of it. So that there was a lot of shuffling going on with the lineup even before Porter Brown got hurt. And um, it really does feel, I mean, Wolf, Watch, Wolf Watson, Gunther Henry has kind of been that top four. Isola has moved into the top three and, and bounced around. But without Porter Brown, um, there's been a lot more volatility in the lineup, and and so that just increases a little bit more of the you, you're introducing these different styles of batters at different times in the lineup, and baseball, like hitting, is just going to be this weird function of you have this single dynamic moment where a batter receives a pitch from a pitcher who have both faced batters and pitchers before, 
And in, even in that game, outcomes have happened. And so there's a lot moving at once. TCU's bats aren't really consistent in light of that, which is saying that they are struggling to figure out how to optimize that talent and kind of maximize their sequential possibilities there. Um, so I think lineup shuffling, uh, although it does seem to kind of be coming to an equilibrium with that top four, uh, is going to be harder to – it's going to continue to increase that volatility. Then that thought made me go to, okay, well, looking at just runs and looking at just scoring margins doesn't account for opponent. It doesn't really account for um, individual performance. A lot of that's based on fielding. A lot of that's based on midweek games that are playing other people. Um, and runs are a counting stat. And you know how we feel about counting stats generally. They're misleading. Uh, they lead us to overgeneralize. And so I went to strikeout rate and walk rate over the 2019 season uh, because mostly I'm interested in when do, when do baseball stats converge for college. There's there's some pretty good rule of thumbs for Major League Baseball. You know, nothing matters before Memorial Day. Um, and But college baseball, you know, you've got, what, 50, 60-game season if you're winning a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know when something means something. And so I just plotted TCU's rolling strikeout and walk rate um, over the course of the season. So that's saying in game one, it's the strikeout season to date for game one. And then for game two, it's season to date game one and two. So it just kind of cumulatively goes. And it does look in the last 10 or so games that um, TCU's strikeouts and walks rate has converged to what it's going to be. It has leveled out a little bit. What's troubling about that is the strikeouts have increased and the walks have decreased. So as they've converged, um, you know, strikeouts are high and volatile at the beginning of the season, but they flattened out. And then in the last 10 games, they've slowly risen kind of as we're converging and getting more sample and more understanding. It looks like TCU's true strike rate is actually a little bit higher than it has been over the last 15 games. Um, and the same with the walk rate as that's, those are, those are related, obviously as the strikeout rate is slightly increased, that walk rate is decreasing. Um, and so that even more than the sequential aspect is a little bit troubling because that's a vicious cycle of players having a boom and bust kind of interaction or a boom and bust results. Then they're pressing harder. They're not seeing pitches as well. They're swinging more. Um, when they shouldn't be, and that's only going to widen that gap between strikeout and walk rate uh, in the wrong direction. So I think that graph is up on Twitter, and um, it'll probably make its way into a post pretty soon here, so you can visualize. I know the the word the the, the visual or the the verbal picture isn't exactly great, but we're thinking about these things converging, and it looks like as they're converging to their true values, they're actually strikeouts and walks are separating in the direction you don't want to see them go. Well, I mean, that's, and that points to, I think, the, the depth issue. I mean, it's at some point, you know, when, when Porter Brown's not in the lineup in favor of, because of an injury, and so instead you've got uh, Kiefer, and if Kiefer's not in the lineup, so instead you've got Wolf playing right field, which means Bobby Goodlow is DHing or something like that, then obviously, right. you know, that, that, that feeds into that trend. So, uh, you know, if, if, if Porter Brown was still in and Hunter Wolf was playing, short and Oviedo was third and or whatever else however however you want to construct your own lineup maybe maybe that trend shifts in a different direction yeah I, th- I think that's uh that's definitely true um just also because guys kind of get stuck in roles that they're not a hundred percent and and you approach a game differently as a dh as opposed to playing in the field and um these guys are young and still developing and that definitely takes a toll on them it does it definitely does but it's interesting stuff. I mean, you talk about understanding the quality of lineup that we have, and, and really kind of detailing different ways of, of breaking things down. This is a, this is a super interesting way of looking at it from from a strikeouts and walks perspective. So thanks for that. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully it gets. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get it out there where we can see it and digest it a little better. Um, I will pivot a little bit off of that too because I did have some thoughts uh, just to kind of look at what happened last season versus compared to this season. So I know there's been sure, some like yeah. disappointing results, but I found a couple stats that were pretty interesting in terms of um, has TCU made improvements from what was a, a very bad year last year? 
okay. and so I won't I won't read all of these stats off, but I will say through twenty seven games, uh, TCU has an OPS of point eight nine four. All season last year, TCU had an OPS of point seven five seven, and that includes a late season hot streak. So yeah. TCU is uh, over a hundred points better in OPS. Um, they are hitting. They have. Oh, I'm trying to say how to word this because I don't know how to word this. So I'm just going to talk until it happens. Here we go. Last year, the roster had eight players with an OBP greater than .360. They only had okay. four with an OBP over .4 um, total all season. So, mm-hmm. again, we're halfway through. Um, there's a lot that's going to happen, but it does look like some of these numbers are converging and we're getting closer to the true values of what these players actually are. So this year... All 12 batters who have had meaningful at-bats, I called them qualified, but I can't remember what my threshold is, but all 12 batters who have had meaningful at-bats have uh, OBP greater than 360, and nine have an OBP greater than 400. So four had an OBP greater of 400 last year, and nine this season do. So clearly hitting a lot better. Um, But the flip side of that is whip last year was 1.29, and this year it's 1.4. Um, the, uh, the strikeout to walk ratio was 2.79 last year and it's 2.42 this year. That's a small difference, but over the course of the season, um, that's a really, really big difference. I think that also ties back into my, uh, statement about individual play-by-play data. We can't see things like swings and misses, but if I had a theory, I would say this is one of the lower years on swings and misses um, that TCU's had, that guys are making a lot more contact against TCU. Um, mm-hmm. And that's indicated indicated in that, you know, they're not striking as many people out. Um, lastly, I was curious about season to date, like I was looking at strikeout rate, but I wanted to look at wins um, and just kind of compare to last year and say, what's going on with, are standing kind of in the pattern of TCU history. And so it's the third of April. It's we've gone through our first kind of week series in April or the, 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 uh, the first conference series and then the first midweek game in April. And so I looked at this point over the last six years, since 2013, right Mm -hmm. now, TCU has 18 wins. Um, and they only have one series loss on the season, which is, which is an accomplishment. They're doing well. Um, in the last year, in the last six years, the years that TCU has made it to Omaha, they have won 20 games by April 6th. Um, so okay. in 2014, they won 20. 2015, they won 23. 2016, they won 22. 2017, they won 24. Uh, 2018 and 2013, the two worst Schlossnagel years by far, they won 14 games and 14 games um, by April 6th. April 7th. Sorry, April 7th. Um, and so TCU's at 18 right now. Obviously, correlation doesn't imply causation. That doesn't really mean a lot. But if we're looking for these bellwethers of um, when we're comparing such a small season sample size that we have right now, um, history kind of gives us these bellwethers to say, is this good or bad? Because we don't mm-hmm. know yet. And so 18 wins. If that 18 turns into 20, TCU's on pace for what it has been in the past when it's been successful. Um, and so maybe that's not a cause to celebrate and say, oh, yes, we're going to Omaha, but it could at the very least be a cause for not being concerned about the team struggling early on and, and maybe losing a couple of games that should have won. Or uh, it could be a big cause for concern if they don't reach that threshold and we say, well, they're, they're not on pace for what they've done when they've been successful. Um, and so maybe they're, they're, they're struggling here. Yes, yeah, so I, I mean, you still got the whole second half of the season to go. So this is this is an interesting trend, though, and I think it it supports uh, what Schlossnagel and some of the players have been saying from the get-go is that this is really still a pretty young team. Outside of guys like Janzak and Lodolo and Josh Watson, and, and I guess you can lump Johnny Reiser into that, too, this is a significantly young baseball team. Um, it, it, even including all of the JUCO guys like Austin Henry and Hunter Wolf. Uh, I think it was Zach Humphrey said after, you know, uh, I think it was, I can't remember what series it was. It was early in the year, though. It was like their first weekend series in Lupton, something like that. He said, you know, we've got a lot of uh, quality hitters. We just don't have a lot of mature hitters yet that can hit at the D1 level consistently. And so maybe this is a sign 
that even in the midst of all of that youth and all of that JUCO talent that's still adjusting to the D1 level, you've really got a core of quality guys that are helping the trajectory of this program kind of get back to what it was. Whether or not they actually reach that height is yet to, is yet to be seen, but the trend is at least in the right direction. Definitely. And that youth breeds uh, success in the future. And so some of those guys getting opportunities now to learn and be mature, like I was talking, kind of sets, resets that cycle of development and um, paves the way for future talent and gets TCU back on that cycle of competing year in and year out. Definitely. And this is really interesting stuff. Thanks for bringing that to the table. It's really cool. Definitely. Thanks for grounding it in some journalism because you know I don't do journalism. So, uh, no, you just do data. And it's great to, <laughs> it's great to have my head start spinning uh, when I'm trying to keep up with, with all of the numbers that are being thrown out there. But I think I have a grasp on all of the OBP, OPS stuff, and, and all of the things that you were saying. And hopefully everyone else does too. Cool. So, But I think that'll just about do it. This has been uh, the Frogs War podcast. Obviously, there's a lot still going on in Frogland as far as Jamie Dixon and TCU basketball is concerned. TCU baseball still has a significant number of games left to play. So you can keep it here every week. We'll be talking about TCU sports. And for Parker Fleming, I am Jamie Plunkett. Go Frogs. Go Frogs.